All right. Good evening, everyone. It's good to see you. Uh, Matthew and the team, thank you so much for leading us this evening. Uh, won't you take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. One of the, the many but great issues of our day is that of suffering. It consumes our news feeds, our conversations. We spend huge amounts of money every year on medical aid in case we suffer. We buy safer cars so that we can avoid suffering in case we have accidents. And countries like ours spend billions on technology to predict random things, even like weather patterns, so that we don't have to suffer too much. It might seem like a bit of a dumb question, but why on earth are we so obsessed with avoiding suffering? In part, it makes complete sense. As human beings, we are programmed with a sense of self-preservation. We don't naturally embrace anything that takes us into the realm of us not getting what we want. On the other hand, there's also this strange desire to move forward. Babies become toddlers who become children who become adults. So along with this desire for self-preservation is a desire for accomplishment, achievement, and moving forward. If I had to summarize that, I would simply say this. At the core of each of us is a desire to know that our lives have meaning and purpose. We want to know that what we say, think, and do actually has value. Now, just a heads up uh, before I continue. Throughout the sermon, uh, I'm wanting to contrast God's word against the wisdom that we so often are exposed to in the world that we live in. And so I'm not going to be quoting Christians in my sermon, rather non-Christians. And all I'm wanting to do is contrast them against Scripture this evening. Now, I don't agree with everything that these people have said. I just need to put that out there as a proviso. But what their thoughts are, are helpful. And so Angela Duckworth, a, a psychologist, in her book, Grit. Mm. Aha. Angela Duckworth, a psychologist in her book, Grit, says that people will accomplish much more if they actually have something to accomplish. People want purpose. We want meaning. And I think this, is the, this really hits at the idea of why suffering impacts us so deeply. It seems to wedge itself right in the middle of those two categories, those two worlds that we live in. This desire for progress and for moving forward and this innate desire for self-preservation. So if we're going to suffer, we really want to know why. What is it going to accomplish? And why does it have to happen? What is the purpose of it? Now, just previously, I said that we avoid suffering, but perhaps it's not actually that we avoid it totally, but rather we only embrace it when we see the value of it. Now, some of you might recognize the name, The Greatest Generation. Uh, this was the generation that fought in the Second World War. And when you listen to some of the interviews of these men and women who came home from the Second World War, you will hear them speak very highly about one specific thing, suffering. They speak very highly that their suffering was a tool which enabled them to accomplish great things. Some of the soldiers whose interviews I listened to would say something along this lines: it was only at our lowest that we began to understand strength. There's also people who take on huge challenges. I know we in this church have a bunch of fitness junkies. And so there's a, there's a, a race in America called the Moab 240. 
It's a 383-kilometer run. The most uh, recent winner, a lady named Courtney DeWalter, would say in an interview that her training was nothing but suffering and suffering and suffering to get herself ready to run a race and suffer, after which she would spend weeks recovering and suffering. And when Courtney was asked why she was so set on winning the Moab 240, despite all the suffering, her response was simply, because I really wanted to. So it might not be that the issue we see is in fact the issue that we face. Maybe suffering isn't the issue. Maybe we don't really know what's worth suffering for. Now, I don't want to trash talk anyone who's done some incredible things while suffering, but perhaps we glamorize these types of suffering because the heroes that it creates is someone that we also desperately want to be. We want to be strong. We want to achieve the unachievable. We want to do the ridiculous. Now, can I be honest for a moment? Most of us don't even like driving 300 kilometers. Never mind running it. Most of us never want to go to war, even if it means making a new great generation. But what purpose does suffering have for us as Christians? What should we do with this great question of suffering? And I want to pose this evening that we must be careful that we don't approach suffering with the wrong attitude. If we simply brush the question off, we show Christians that suffering is not something which is important to God. It's just incidental. It's something which happens even to good people, and you must just get over it. We portray a kind of don't ask, don't tell faith, which encourages Christians to speak positively in public, but to suffer in private. We also show non-Christians that God is simply disinterested in the things which consume their thoughts, that keep them up at night. And we show them that the church has no meaningful heart or answer to the biggest questions that they face. Secondly, if we oversimplify the theology of suffering, we do more harm than good. I've seen many well-meaning Christians speaking to someone who is suffering, and they throw out the theological statement, well, it's all for God's glory. As much as this is true, that whatever happens to us is indeed ultimately for the glory of God, when we throw a statement like that out as a thing that's meant to simply comfort people, we are showing that we are ignorant to their hurt. When we dumb down the work of God in our life to a simple pithy theological statement, as true as it might be, we show absolutely no sensitivity towards the reality of how a person feels while suffering. It's no wonder then that non-Christians are not compelled to see the gospel as good news for their suffering. It's not that there's anything wrong with the gospel, is it? But rather that we might not take the time to explain biblically how the gospel impacts people's suffering. And when we do so, we undermine the gospel. And so this evening, we're not gonna be doing a deep dive into suffering, that's not my goal. Rather, we're just simply gonna be looking at what Paul says is one of the reasons why we suffer. And all I want to do is to encourage us tonight. Now, because suffering is an incredibly personal thing, can I ask that as we go into the text this evening, that no matter what attitude you came to church with tonight, will you simply pray with me that God will open our eyes to the truths of his word, that your heart will be soft to receive them, and that your life will be transformed in its application. So let's just bow our heads and pray together.
Our great and glorious God, you are indeed able to open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, to see the truth of the purpose of our suffering. Please, Lord, by your Spirit, would you work in our hearts this evening so that we might see from your word the truth that we need, that we might believe them in our hearts, even if we're wrestling. And Lord, that we might live transformed lives with a greater knowledge of and obedience to your word. Lord, we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So our passage this evening really is a short section of Scripture. It's Philippians 1, verse 12 to 14. And it simply reads like this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial God and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become, obe- uh, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. And so this evening, I want us to look at our passage in two sections, really to deal with the two people groups that Paul addresses. And I want us to think about them in light of the statement that Paul makes in verse 12, that he is suffering because it will advance the gospel. And we're going to try and see what it looks like for the gospel to be advanced in each of these groups. And so the first point then is simply this, the gospel is advanced through your suffering when unbelievers see that very same gospel at work. The gospel is advanced through your suffering when unbelievers see the gospel at work in your life. And so let's go back to that thought for a moment. What gives life purpose? If we were to look around us and see what people spend their time and their money and their efforts on, perhaps we'll say things like possessions, nice cars, nice houses, nice clothes, Maybe it's things that consume our time, like sport and entertainment and hobbies. Maybe it's more the social component of this world, a family that loves us, good friends that care about us. Maybe philosophers can help. Uh, Aristotle said that happiness is the meaning and purpose of life, the whole aim and the end of human existence. But surely, if we were to just look at those ideas themselves, that possessions, friends, family, happiness, if these are to be the purpose of our lives, then surely we would be forced to come away with the conclusion that life is meaningless. And if life is meaningless, then suffering is definitely meaningless. If that's all there is to this world, then the atheist here this evening is in fact the smartest person in the room. Because let's be honest, everyone at their core, we are not at all times the best of friends. We are not always happy. We are not the best spouses or siblings. We are not the best at our hobbies or our entertainment. We don't always have the nicest car, the fanciest houses. There's always a level above where we are. And at the end of the day, each of us will also die. So no matter if we do accomplish, if we do excel in an area, even that is simply temporary. So what's the point? Well, Paul says in verse 13, as he is writing from house arrest in Rome for preaching the gospel and awaiting trial, he says the purpose of his suffering is to advance the gospel. But what does Paul mean by that? Well, if we look at the word advance, we get this idea of progress, idea of moving forward, an idea that something is on a journey and it has an end goal. 
And so when Paul says that your and my suffering is playing its part in the advancement of the gospel, he's giving purpose. And how does the gospel advance through Paul's suffering? Well, Paul says that it's given him an opportunity to make it known to every one of those imperial gods around him that his suffering is for Christ. To Paul, his and your suffering uniquely qualifies you to call yourself a follower of Jesus. This is an incredible thought, that your and my individual suffering can be used by God as an instrument to bring about the salvation of those who do not know God. Suffering, then, isn't simply about surviving, nor is it with the prosperity preachers about thriving. It's not just about making it through. Suffering is one of the greatest tools that God has given the Christian to spread and share the gospel. That gives us meaning and purpose to our suffering. How much more ready we would be to suffer if we were reminded of this truth, that suffering will be a tool in your and my life to reach our friends and families that do not know Christ, to reach into the workspace, people at school, in our universities. But what does this look like practically? What is the link between my suffering and people hearing about Christ? Well, according to Paul, later in this chapter, in verse 27, Paul says the link is a life, worth, a life lived worthy of the gospel. Now, we don't have time to unpack everything between 14 and 27, but essentially Paul is emphasizing to the Philippian church that if you desire for your suffering like his to have a positive outcome for the gospel, then live a life worthy of the gospel. Now, we know that that's much easier said than done. Suffering is a powerful thing. It causes immense change in people. It causes emotional turmoil, crying out of our heart, feelings of weakness and insecurity, doubt and confusion, spiritual darkness that often overcomes us. Sometimes we return back to old sins during suffering. Often there's a physical impact on our bodies. Likewise, we see unprompted aggression towards others and distancing from those who care. And these are all natural responses of those who suffer. And suffering is a powerful thing. So if the normal response to suffering is not a closeness with God, a growing closeness with God and his people, how then are we to live lives worthy of the gospel while we suffer? Well, Paul highlights this in three of his letters. In Galatians, uh, to the church in Galatia, Paul writes in Galatians 5, 16 to 25, to remind the church to walk in the Spirit. He says, flee from sin. According to righteousness, live for God because of what God has done for you in salvation. It's just a summary. To the Colossian church, Paul writes in Colossians 3, verse 1 to 17, and he reminds them that their salvation is in Christ, and Christ then calls them to live lives holy and worthy of the gospel. They are to turn from sin. They are to put away their, their old selves. They are to embrace and to let the word of God dwell in them richly and to change them as they submit themselves to it. And to the Corinthian church, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 to 11, 
that the church must no longer live in sin. In fact, that lives lived in sin mark a person who has not yet embraced Christ for their salvation, but who has indeed embraced death. Rather, it is those who live by Christ, this new life being washed being redeemed by Christ, it is those people who look to Christ not only for their salvation, but for a new life, a life worthy of the gospel. And so if we pick up across Paul's writings, this same thought, this is essentially what Paul says to every single church that he writes to, that the Christian life is to be this, that we are to look to what Christ did on the cross. And when we look to Christ, That is what will cause us to live a life worthy of the gospel. So if the gospel promises forgiveness from sin, looking to Christ means that we will turn from sin. If the gospel promises us that we will be made clean and righteous in front of God, we then no longer embrace things that will stain us. And if the gospel says that Christ is Lord, then looking to Christ means that we will no longer live as though his words are simply an option. Paul offers a fantastic summary in this book in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 to 11. Sorry, that's going to be very small. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and by any means possible, And that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, if you're like me, when you read that passage, your heart might be saying, really, rubbish. What I have suffered has not felt like rubbish. What I have lost due to my suffering has not looked like rubbish. In fact, in a church like Honeyridge, we have seen people suffer immense things where they will be deeply burdened by the fact that Paul has called what is lost in suffering rubbish. How can Paul be so brazen as to say that whatever we lose is rubbish? Can I vouch for Paul for a moment? I think... I think he speaks helpfully to us in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23 to 29. He shares a little bit about what has happened to him living life as a Christian. He says, I've had far more imprisonments with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I've received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from our own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is this daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is made to fall? Am I not indignant? 
What I want us to notice here is that Paul is saying that not everything he faced in terms of his suffering was specifically for the gospel in what it looked like. Not everything he faced was because he was an apostle. Much of what he faced was simply because he was a Christian. The kind of suffering that each of us face. Being shipwrecked, bitten by snakes, having smash and grabs and bears and ordea, Paul knew these kinds of things very well. When Paul says that everything is to be considered as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ, he's using the same teaching technique of Jesus, and it's highly effective. When Jesus teaches in Matthew that we are to hate our families in comparison to how much we love God, Jesus was saying that the value and the worth of God is so great that any affection we have for other, th- other things will seem so ridiculously insignificant that it's as though we hate them. In the same way, everything that we lose is not rubbish itself, but in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, it is small. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7, For this light and momentary affliction, this temporary suffering, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. For as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Friends, if you want your suffering to be used by God, and I want my suffering to be used by God to advance the gospel, we need to have hearts and minds that are completely rewired, not to see fancy cars and not even friendships, not even our marriages or our children, not happiness, nor anything that is our most prized possessions, but which is temporary, but the sake of knowing Christ. If we prize Christ above all, we will live lives worthy of the gospel. We will live holy lives, changed lives, lives of value and purpose, so that when suffering comes, we will have confidence like Paul to make it known to those around us, especially unbelievers, that we suffer for Christ. When we live lives worthy of the gospel, we live as Christ, and this is how unbelievers see Christ. Secondly, then, the gospel is also advanced through our suffering when fear is driven out of Christians. Now, as a pastor, people speak to you about many different things all throughout the week, and something which is not often said out loud, but it lurks in the background of many conversations is a sense of fear. Now, this fear takes on many forms. For some, it's spiritual Wondering if perhaps the sin that they are struggling with has pushed them away from God, maybe even made them unsavable. For others, the fear is physical. Am I safe in South Africa? Will it be okay for my children to grow up here? For some, it's psychological. Am I enough? What if people don't like me? Will I ever be accepted? Similar to suffering, fear interrupts our lives and gets in the way of us doing what we want. And here in verse 14, Paul tells the Philippian church that the Christians with him in Rome were afraid. Now, it doesn't doesn't take much for us to wonder why. When we read historical accounts of what happened to Christians during Rome at the time of the early church, we see that these people were stoned. They were even lit on fire and stored in cages on the side of the streets to be be lanterns, to be uh, torches and candles. 
They were cut into pieces. They were chased out of cities. Being a Christian meant that you would suffer. It's no wonder that they were afraid. And I think we need to be honest and say we are too. In my mind, the question then comes up naturally from this passage. If people are afraid of suffering for being Christians, and Paul is under house arrest for being a Christian, how on earth does that advance the gospel? Well, Paul's answer is outrageous. We read in verse 14 that most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. How on earth does that happen? How do those people who are scared of suffering become confident when they see suffering? Friends, this is the reality of Christian suffering. When Christians have their hope set on Christ, when Christ is our all in all, when Christ is enough for us, when we find our hope in Jesus, when we trust the goodness of Christ, and when we live lives worthy of the gospel, the way we face suffering causes other Christians to see suffering differently. What makes suffering so scary for us is how it robs us. It robs us of control. It destroys our confidence in the future. Now, what returns hope to those weary hearts, on the other hand, is not simple statements like everything will be fine, but rather when we see a believer clinging to Christ as their all in all. And when we see Christ clinging to his children. Paul says to the Philippians, you will not believe it. My being put in jail has actually made Christians more confident in God because they have seen how God has sustained me, how God has kept me, that his promises are true. Oh, how we as a church need to learn this truth and have it sink down deep in our hearts. Perhaps this evening, like me, you need to learn that your suffering is not just for you. That it's not as individualistic as you think it is. It's not as meaningless as it felt. Perhaps you need to see that your suffering should also happen in community. Bringing people around you to see, not that you are strong enough to make it out, and not to see that we are pathetic, but to see how tightly God holds on to those who are weak. What a blessing we would be to others if when we suffered, we made it a mission of ours to make our lives worthy of the gospel. If we shared what we were praying about, the scriptures that the Lord is using to encourage us, if our social media posts were used to amplify the things that God has transfixed our hearts on, if we focused on pointing others to Christ. What a blessing we would be as a church if we normalized community in suffering so that we prayed for one another, that we step into that gap and we care for one another practically in ways that are incredible instead of simply turning away and making suffering an individual's problem that we rather turn to one another and we suffer with one another. What a blessing it would be for us if we were to suffer with those who suffer if we were to take on other people's suffering as our own, if we were to walk with those who are hurting, helping a family who is financially hurting, offering lifts to people in the church's kids when they're sick, buying Christian books and resources for those who want to grow but who are hurting. But let's be honest, we're all afraid of suffering. 
It's all well and good to say that we should approach life in a biblical way, focusing on Christ as the joy of our salvation, but what does that really look like? Well, Jaco Willink, uh, ex-Navy SEAL, says this, you need to realize that most of the fear you have isn't reality. It's just built up in your head. So what you need to do to overcome this fear is to go on the offensive, go on the attack, move towards it, don't hide from it, confront it, face it, get after it. Okay. Sadhguru, um, some of you, I hope, don't know him, uh, but he's a yogi and a mystic. He says something which is truly frightening. He says, your fear is simply because you are not living with life. I want you to pick up on the same prosperity gospel themes that you'll hear here. You are living in your mind. Your fear is always about what is going to happen next. And that means that your fear is always about that which does not exist. If your fear is about the non-existent, your fear is 100% imaginary. If you're suffering the non-existential, we call that insanity. So people may be in socially accepted levels of insanity. But if you're afraid or if you're suffering anything which does not exist, it amounts to insanity, isn't it? If you were rooted in reality, there would be no fear. How about Beatrice and Russell, philosopher and logistician? Russell says that fear is the main source of superstition and one of the main sources of cruelty. To conquer fear, how counter is this to scripture, is the beginning of wisdom. If I had to summarize those three non-Christian ways of thinking, it would be this. You suck, do better, or you're potentially insane, or your fear is stupid, so do not fear. So between the hyper-masculine thinking of Jaco, or the enlightened Hindu thinking of Sadhguru, or the philosophical gobbledygook that is Russell, let's be honest, how much encouragement does that really bring to your heart when you're suffering? Paul gives us God's solution to suffering in verse 14. These brothers who have become more confident are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Friends, God's solution to suffering is this, confidence in God. A common question I get at youth is, I'm afraid, so how do I share the gospel with friends at school? Friends, the way you drive out fear in sharing the gospel or anything else is by showing people Christ. Not programs, not methods, not techniques, Christ. The Christians have had the fear of man and failure and Satan and suffering stuck within them. And the, the, sorry, that's the way that we, we live as Christians often, but the way that it is replaced is with a deep, firsthand, personal knowledge of seeing God keep his promises. Seeing God keep his promise of being with his people. Seeing God caring for his people, seeing God protecting his people, seeing God love his people, and seeing God provide for his people. These promises of God find their perfect fulfillment in Christ. In Christ, we see God comes to us as Emmanuel, God with us. God with us to live a perfect life, a life of complete sinlessness, a life of sinlessness in that he cared deeply for his people to the point of immense suffering, not just physical, but having the sins of the world cast upon him on the cross so that you and I can know 
God through His righteousness. See, when Jesus died on the cross, He did so as an atoning sacrifice. He paid your and my sin price by purchasing us by His own blood. And He cleansed us and He washed us. And now He protects us from Satan and His desires to destroy us by making suffering seem pointless. And Jesus, being perfect, loved his people to the uttermost, rising again from the dead and ascending into heaven as the conquering lamb who suffered and who has provided salvation for his people. See, the confidence that we have in God is not a random confidence that God is supposedly capable of helping us. Rather, it is a firsthand confidence that our Lord and Savior suffered. 1 Peter 4 verse 1 and 2 reminds us, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of man, but for the will of God. Church family, fellow sufferers, if I can put it that way, Put your confidence in Christ. He is a good and worthy Savior, one who gives us hope and purpose and meaning in our suffering. And he shows us that it's not meaningless and not purposeless that we face the things that Christ said we will face as disciples of his, but rather to identify us with our Lord and Savior. See, our suffering is given to us to drive out fear in our fellow Christians, to drive out a fear of suffering, knowing that it is not about me, but I see the Lord carrying and keeping and holding fast to his children. I think many of us can attest to this, that we have seen our Lord's goodness and kindness in this church. We have seen so many of our brothers and sisters suffer immense trials but what an encouragement it is for me in my suffering, not when I feel the Lord present with me necessarily, but when I see him at work in four, five hundred other believers each week. That gives me confidence and hope. That restores my trust. That makes me know that my suffering is not meaningless so that when the Lord waits to provide what I am praying for, I am not left in the dark. I see his light shining brightly. Do you have confidence that the Lord is using your suffering for good? Do you have confidence that the Lord is using your suffering for the advance of the gospel? Can I encourage you that God's word says that this is true and right, that our Lord loves us so much that our lives are not meaningless, that our suffering is not purposeless, but that you and I are given every opportunity, not just through the good, but in a dead and dying world to proclaim the gospel that includes suffering with our Lord because he loves us. What a great encouragement the Lord is to us. What a great counselor the Holy Spirit is to us who suffer, who are suffering, who are weak and who are child, who are mourning and hurting. Can I encourage us as a church? Look to Christ. But not just to Christ, let that looking flow out of you in your daily life. 
Let your looking to Christ impact those around you, unbelievers and believers. Point unbelievers to Christ as you live a holy life that is changed. Point believers to Christ as their fear is driven out, as you boast in the Lord's goodness and kindness to you. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Lord, we thank you that we can trust you with our suffering. Lord, this area of our lives which is so personal, which seems so intimate to us, Lord, something we so desperately want to hide, something, Lord, we so desperately don't want to bring others in on. Lord, help us to know that our suffering is indeed something you want to use as a tool to drive fear out of your children as they see you show yourself faithful and to point the unbelievers around us to Christ through your goodness and your faithfulness and your kindness to your people. Lord, we thank you for the grace which you show us. Thank you, Lord, that in our weakness and yet in your wisdom, you allow suffering in our lives because you are good and you know best and you're accomplishing your will and your purpose and you see fit, Lord, to use us for that. Lord, we can't account for how many times we have failed to use our suffering for good, but we praise you, Lord, that you are the one who holds tomorrow, that holds all things, and that you have never once failed. We thank you, Lord, that even when we have messed up, where we have not taken this opportunity, Lord, where we have failed, you indeed are so kind and full of grace and compassion to us, even, Lord, using our suffering to point those around us to Christ. Please, Lord, would you help us as a church to love one another well in our suffering? Would we be able to be pulled out of the individualistic mindsets of this world and to look to you, Lord, and trust you with the difficult task of suffering in community, of drawing others in to help us to suffer, to love us, to care for us, as you care for us through them. Lord, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for this time in your word. Lord, please would you take these truths, plant them deep within us, and cause them to bear much fruit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.